Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Deuteronomy 32. If you've looked ahead, you know there are 34 chapters, so we are just about to finish Torah for the second time in this fellowship. And I love that. And I don't know about you, but I can say with all honesty, I've enjoyed it more this time through than the first time through. Seen things and been touched by things that I did not see um, several years ago when we walked through all this together. But we're going to be in Deuteronomy 32. But before we get there, I, can I make a couple of corrections? I, I discovered that uh, from the last teaching on Wednesday night, November 17th, so this is going back at just a couple or three Wednesdays, um, it was a teaching that I called Words on a Heap of Ruin. You may recall that Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, that, uh, uh, is it Gerizim? See, I'm going to make another mistake. I'm going to have to go back and correct this. It's a heap of ruin. I believe it's Gerizim is heap of ruin or heap of ruins. And Deuteronomy chapter 26 through 28, we were in that and studying it. And so here are the two corrections I want to make very quickly. And it's important for you to grasp these, especially the first one for what we're going to talk about on Sunday. I mixed up the order of Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream. So he dreamed of this glorious statue with a gold head and silver arms and breast and then a bronze belly and legs of iron and feet of a composite mixture of iron and clay. And it's very significant, the order and how that all falls. And, and I think I switched the silver arms with the bronze belly and said he had bronze arms and silver belly. So I got it backwards. I want to correct that. Make sure you, that we're all on the same page there. The second thing is that I said Reshit, the Feast of First Fruits, was in the fall. Well, I know it's not in the fall, but I said it was in the fall. It's in the spring. And in fact, that's so significant because Reshit, First Fruits, was the Sunday of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ, the First Fruits, has been raised. The first fruits of those who are asleep, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. So that's significant. Jesus is the first fruits. He resurrected on first fruits. That happened in the spring. So those two I wanted to correct before we got going. And I wanted to also let you know that none of you caught my mistakes. We just didn't say uh, well, that's one way to put it. No, no, we're all in this together. But I, 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 this is why, again, it's so important Bibles are open. Those are little things, not a, not a big deal, obviously not big issues. But man, have your Bible open and never be shy about, Lori, correcting me if, you know, if, I, if I miss it. Because we want to teach truth and we want to be consistent in the truth. So come with Bibles open, test the teaching. It'll keep us all on our toes. Now, on with the song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32. Hadevarim, the, these words build throughout. We now come to really the apex section of the entire book, the Song of Moses, chapter 32, the Blessing of Moses, chapter 33, and then finally the farewell, if you will, the burial of Moses, chapter 34. We'll be done with this before Christmas Eve. By the way, we have tonight, we will have next Wednesday night, and then the last two Wednesdays of December, we won't be meeting. The second to last Tuesday, or Wednesday is going to be right before Christmas Eve. And then the last Wednesday is between Christmas and New Year. And we're taking those two Wednesday nights off. So just so you know, you're welcome to come, but we won't be here. So the Song of Moses, the Song of Moses. This is, note this, a road song. It's a road song. 
I, I found this fascinating. I started to notice on different pop records over the years that there would be a road song or a song written from the road or a song referred to as a road song. And as a matter of fact, if you look back, nearly every pop artist from the 60s through the 90s, probably somewhere in their repertoire has a road song. They're writing from experience, so of course they would. They're on the road all the time, so of course they would write about their experiences on the road, and that's what kind of befalls or, or befits a road song. The song of Moses, and this just hit me today, it really is a road song. A, a road song. That is, it sings all the way to Israel's final destination. It is a song of the journey of Israel from God finding Israel to God restoring Israel the whole way. There is a destination in mind as Moses is singing. So keep that in mind as we talk about things tonight. And I'm going to pick up right in verse 1 again. I know we studied a bit of this on Sunday, but let's go through it to get our, our feet running here. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. They have acted corruptly toward him. They're not his children because of their defect, but a perverse and crooked generation do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is, he not your, is not he your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father. He'll inform you. Your elders, they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. How many of you all watch It's a Wonderful Life every year? Just show of hands. Okay. And if you don't or if you've never seen it, watch it this year. It's heartwarming. You'll love it. There's a scene in It's a Wonderful Life, and this always makes me think of this, where it says, ask your father, verse 7, and he will inform you. A scene where George Bailey is in the in the druggist shop there, and he's not sure what to do. He's got a, a kind of a crisis. He's a little boy, not sure what to do. And he looks up, and there's a sign on the wall of the shop, and it is vivid in my mind. It says, ask dad, he knows. And George goes, ah, and runs to his father's place of business to ask his father's opinion on what he should do. I tell you that because I think these little mnemonic devices are really important in our lives. When you see It's a Wonderful Life this year and you see Ask Dad, He Knows, just know that we have a Heavenly Father who you can ask anything and He knows. Let it be a little reminder to you, ask your father. Now, Moses is actually saying, ask your earthly father and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you. But we have the privilege of going directly to our Father which is in heaven, holy be his name. Verse 9 again, For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of a wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign god with him. And you'll recall on Sunday we talked about this eagle, the nasher. Nasher in the Hebrew, which is actually the great vulture. 
or the griffin vulture in the Middle East. And we really got into that. If you didn't hear that on Sunday, go back and check it out. The griffin vulture, just looking at that bird, it's fascinating the allusions that you can make to understanding the position of God over his people Israel. We even named him because we talked about how if you read on that he stirs the nest and hovers over its young, and we named the young Nat and Nora Nasher. And I thought afterwards, and if you were here second service, I, I made a little shift. I thought instead of Nat and Cher, maybe we should name one of the two little eaglets or, or vultures Sonny. So we have Sonny and Cher. Sonny and... It didn't work Sunday either, but I thought I'd give that another try. Okay, moving on. The Lord alone guided him. There was no foreign God with him. Listen, with all seriousness, hint to effective Bible study. I had a great conversation with a gentleman I met for the first time on Sunday. We sat down, we were talking. He said, how do you study the Bible? And can you give me some hints and some helps in this? And we, we went over a few things that, that he could do. And as we talked, I said, you know, and I'll tell you what I told him. Here's the most effective thing you can know about studying the Bible. It is always about who God is. It is always about who God is. If you come to the Word of God to find out who God is, you will learn the Word. You'll understand it better. See, it's about who God is because in knowing who He is, we learn why we're here. Because of who He is, we learn what we're supposed to be doing. Because of who He is, we know when it's all gone down, going down, and will go down. Because of who He is. We also know where we're going, and finally, because of who he is, we know how we're going to get there through his son, Jesus Christ. The whole word is about getting us to know God, getting us closer to God. Why this big, thick book? Because it takes time to get from cover to cover. It's going to take intention and time and, and a willingness to sit down in the, in the instantaneous lives that we live and just wait on the Lord and learn of the Lord. And you find as you do this, I just mentioned we've been through Torah now twice. Going through Torah, what's the best thing that it's done for me? It's shown me God again. Brings me closer to Jesus. Because the entire word of God rests on who God is, especially as revealed in and by Jesus Christ. That's the key to all Bible study. If you come in it with the, with the wrong conclusion of, I'm going to read this to see if I can get some better life skills. Oh, you'll get better life skills from the scriptures, but you'll miss who he is. Come to the scriptures to know God through Jesus Christ. First Timothy 3.16, Paul says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, that is God, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's God. That's Jesus Christ. And that's the proclamation of the scriptures. Now, with that in mind and keep it in mind, we're going to see it throughout the night. The song of Moses, this road song with the final destination out ahead, opens with the stark contrast of the perfection of God, the rock, his ways are perfect, and the corruption of Israel. God is perfect. Israel is perfectly corrupt. Now, before anyone think that we are just picking on Jewish people, Israel is very simply a people group who is representative of all humanity. 
understand no better, no worse, just chosen. What makes Israel unique is they are chosen. It's their chosenness by God. And it's through that relationship, as we've talked about so many times, that God reveals himself to the world, shows us how to interact with him. But Israel, the Jewish people, simply, it's like having an older brother. They went first. My older brother went first. I learned all the things not to do just by watching Ron. It, it was simple. I was a little brother who learned from my brother's mistakes. See, that's the thing. You can, they say you can learn by your mistakes. I much prefer to learn by someone else's. So then I don't have to deal with the fallout and the consequence. And that's what Israel is for us in, in one small way is all that we see in them. Guess what? It's a, it's a microcosm of all of humanity. So if I say God is perfect, Israel is corrupt, you can just as easily say God is perfect, mankind is corrupt. That's the deal. The 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, Paul said these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And Paul is talking there to Christians made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Our instruction here at the end of the age. Now, for the rest of the road song, since that's about as far as we got on Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to follow the lyrical map that I gave you on Sunday. And we've already seen the first three of seven parts to this song. Uh, part one, the appeal to witnesses. As Moses sings, I call heaven and earth to witness this day. So verses one through three, the appeal to witnesses. Secondly, the accusation, which is laid against Israel, verses four through nine. And then thirdly, the account of the Lord's goodwill, verses 10 through 14. What is it about the Lord in this, in this lawsuit type of song? It, it parallels lawsuits of the Middle East in ancient days. What is it about this? Well, it's an account of the overlord's goodwill. And then in verse 13, continuing on in that vein, he made him, that is God made Israel ride on the high places of the earth. He ate the produce of the field. He made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock. Curds of cows and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams, the breed of Bashan and goats with the finest of wheat and, of blood of, and the blood of grapes. You drank wine. God did all this good stuff for you. Blessed you, Israel, an account of his goodwill. Now, this is looking, I, I shared Sunday verses 13 and 14, is looking ahead from their position on the plains of Moab. It's looking ahead prophetically into what it was going to be like for them in the land, that they would have the curds of cows and the milk of the flock and the fat of the lambs and rams and all of that and the, the, fruit, the sweet blood juice of the grape. They'd have all that. They're going to experience all of God's goodness as they come into the land. And that's what would happen to them as the rest of the song is also what will happen to Israel what much of which we have already seen now happen to Israel, just as the song sings prophetically. The good, the bad, the, the, the drawing into the land, the cast out of the land, all of it. And understand, this is also, again, it's a road song because ultimately it's about the great future destination of Israel that will prove God's greater good. So this account of God's goodwill. And then we come to number four, and this is where we start really our study for tonight. The attestation of the broken covenant. 
So here's where it attests to the fact that Israel did not keep the law of God, verse 15. But Jeshurun, remember Jeshurun, this pet name God has for Israel? Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. And then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous, that is, they made God jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth, the broken covenant. And here Moses sings of this. He attests to this. He says, Jeshurun, what's the matter with you? Jeshurun, you broke, God was so kind to you, so good to you, and you broke covenant with him. Jeshurun, you may recall, means upright one. Upright one. Now give me, let me give you another correction for tonight. I mentioned on Sunday, Jeshurun, it's used a couple of times. It's actually used four times in the Hebrew Scriptures. It is a term of endearment, Jeshurun. It's what God calls Israel. And God is the only one who calls Israel Jeshurun. So it's God's name for his people Israel. God calls them his upright one. A term of endearment. Four times it's used. Two times right here, or once, once sorry, one time right here in the song. Two times in chapter 33, which we'll see next Wednesday night. And then the final time, let me read this to you in Isaiah Chapter 44, Isaiah 44, verse 1, which says, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, O Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. I will pour out water on the thirsty, or that is, to, on him who is thirsty, Streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one I will, will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. Jeshurun, my upright one. It's such a beautiful name that God has for the Jewish people. You know what makes it beautiful? God is always seeing things not as they are, but as they should be or really as they will be. He calls things that are not as though they are. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So if God calls Israel upright one, guess what? Israel will be the upright one. It may not be today, and I'm talking about the larger nation as a whole, but Israel as a nation will be the upright one. That's what God has already foreseen. It's what God already plans. 1 Corinthians 1.26, and this is just the way God works, so apply it to your own life. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so no man may boast before God. That's what God does. He always looks beyond 
I remember this was out of Man of La Mancha. And it's a line from Don Quixote where he says, I choose not to see things as they are, but things as they should be. And it's truly the statement of the eternal optimist, right? I'm not going to look at how it is. I'm going to look at how I believe it can be or I would like it to be. Well, that's God. But the thing is, God looks ahead with that kind of positive view, knowing he's going to bring it about. He's not calling Israel upright one, hoping that eventually they will come to it. He's calling them upright one because he is going to make them upright. In the meantime, Israel forsook, scorned, and provoked God to both jealousy and anger. This song has to it a tinge of the jilted lover. You can hear it in what God is saying about his people Israel, that he is actually hurt by it. You might think, well, nothing can hurt God. God loves. And when you love, you can be hurt. And God has this sense of jealousy about what's going on. And note this, look at this closely. It's very significant, verse 17. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. Do you know that there are always new gods who came lately? That, that phrase is so instructive. Every culture creates new gods. It has been this way since the beginning. When a new culture crops up, it begins to create gods in its own image. We've done it in America too. Every culture creates their own gods, new gods who came lately. Hebrews 13.8, however, tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Never changing. Always the same. Faithful. Consistent. American culture. British culture. Go back to, to all the cultures of the world. And every culture has its gods. Everyone. And, and, and God's saying to the people of Israel, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go into the land and you're going to sacrifice to gods who came lately. They're not even the ancient gods of your forefathers, who, by the way, weren't gods. But they're new ones that are just made up in this culture. What does that tell us? It, it, it tells us that there's no integrity. There's no truth to all these world religions because they just get made up as a culture arises. They're always new, always changing. God doesn't, re listen to this, God doesn't refer to false gods. He doesn't refer to them as harmless alternative systems of religion. Now, now stay with me for just a minute because I don't want to get us all judgmental about our neighbor down the street. But in America, we have become so tolerant of every religious faith because, and I believe in this, freedom of religion. So we have freedom of religion Freedom to choose, and God's given us that freedom, by the way. He gave us the freedom to choose him or to reject him. But we have this sense of freedom of religion, and therefore, if the person down the street happens to be a Muslim, okay, it's fine. No, but it's, it's just God by another name, right? Wrong. Only, only if Baal is another name for God, or Vishnu. It's not God by another name. It's false religion. And God does not view false religion as no big deal. In fact, what he calls every false god, and you can track it from the history of the world up to tonight, every false god, God refers to them as demons. Get that. 
they sacrificed to demons who were not God. You might want to note this. This is the first use of the word demon in the Bible. I haven't seen the word before. We've seen, we've seen the serpent. We've seen Satan referred to more than once in Genesis chapter 1 and, and 3, and, and, or chapter 3, and in Job chapter 1 and 2. So Satan's referred to, but this is the first time now, right here in Torah, at the end of Torah, we have a mention of the name of the, of the, of the group of those fallen ones, demons. And the, the word for demons in the Hebrew is shadim. Shadim, which means devils or demons. That's the plural form, shadim. <laughs> Note this, I'm not making this up. It's from the singular word shade. I'm going to throw a little shade on something. The Hebrew word shade is a demon, literally. It's that which ruins, destroys, despoils, or desolates. We even have cartoon images of cute little demons. There's no such thing. The demonic is all about destruction, desolation, ruin. Jesus said the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10.10. That's it. In fact, if you want to study demonology and, and Satanology, that's all you need to know right there. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he's about. That is his end game. That's all he's ever concerned with. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Shadim are about ruin. That's it. This word is used one other time in the Older Testament. So only twice it's used right here. And then it's used in Psalm 106, verse 37 and 38. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the Shadim, to the demons. And they shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with the blood. Note that in verse 37, he refers to them as demons, and then in verse 38, he refers to them as idols. Same thing. It's the same thing. The gods of Canaan, the idols of Canaan were demons and all other gods, little g, all other religious systems, all other belief systems, that's the deal. It's the great lie. In our country and in our world today, the great lie is the validation of various world religions and their gods. Take your pick. You know, what fits your culture? Where were you born and raised? Pick from those gods. What's your upbringing? That must be your God, and we have to respect that God. You know what? I don't like to disrespect any individual, but I will not respect that which is demonic. We are too tolerant as followers of Jesus. We are too tolerant of all these world religions, giving them a nod, saying, that's cool, that's good for you. It's not good for them. It's death. It's ruin. It's destruction, and I'm just talking about if we will see things as they really are, anyone outside of Jesus Christ is going to bring death and destruction. There is no other way to the Father. And so when we just kind of sit back and blandly tolerate someone else's belief without even, without even bringing up the love of God in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying you need to knock on your Muslim neighbor's door and start hammering on Allah. But Allah, my friends, according to this word, is a demon. So is Vishnu. So is Buddha. 
You can just go right down the line. These are demonic presences. They're not even just made up things, by the way. A little bit of my opinion. These are not just made up things by human beings. These are demonic forces. These are actual demonic presences like Satan himself, little demons who function under a name. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, Paul says as much. He says, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Why? Because it means you're a sharer in that which ruins, destroys, despoils, and desolates. I don't want you to be sharers in demons. Paul says you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. They are contraindicated. They are mutually exclusive. So you can't even mix it all together. There is only saving grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not narrow-mindedness, my friends. That is just the truth. I've said before, if you're giving someone directions to get from Fidalgo Island to Whidbey Island, you tell them to go across the bridge. Now, I, I mean, if, you're, if you just want to mess with them, you can make them go all the way down to Seattle and take the Muckleteal Ferry, but stay with me. You, there's one way across. There's just one way across. It's not that that's intolerant. It's just that's the way it is. And in fact, I love that God made it so simple for us as human beings that there aren't a bunch of different ways to get there and maybe get lost on the way. There's just one. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus says. Now, this, this whole idea, we talked about idolatry recently. So tie this in because this is another sign, another practical application of real idolatry even in our lives today. And the word is this, neglect. Neglect. You neglected the rock who begot you, verse 18. Why? Because they were off sacrificing to demons. Idolatry is neglect neglect of the Lord. I'll put it this way. If devotion to anything causes me to neglect Jesus, it's idolatrous. Now that's a strong statement because there are things that I've been devoted to in my life that have caused me to set Jesus aside because I had to take care of this because this was more important in the moment because this had to be done. Anything that causes me to neglect Jesus is idolatry. And by extension, demonic. That's where the people of Israel went. As Moses is singing this song, and it's kind of almost humorous if it wasn't so serious to think about Moses is singing these things. There's a tune here of some kind. As he's pouring this out, and I think the tune just went into a minor key because it is so serious. How does God respond to their neglect, their idolatry, their demon behavior? Moses now sings part five in our song, the announcement of punishment. The announcement of punishment, verse 19. The Lord saw and spurned them specifically because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom there is no faithfulness. 
I don't think people realize how serious a thing it is for God just to turn away, for God to hide his face. This country has been under the blessing of God for well over 200 years. And for God to turn his face, which there are times where I fear, and I'll explain the use of that word in a bit, I fear that's what's going on in America. I fear the Lord is turning his face. Now, I'm not afraid, but I fear it. And I'll explain what I mean in a minute. God says, they have made me jealous with what is not God, verse 21. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So, <laughs> I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And verse 21 takes us right into the first century. I will make them jealous. There it is. The open door to the Gentiles. I will make them jealous <laughs> with those who are not a people. The Gentiles. How do you know? First Peter chapter 2, verse 10. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And it is that awesome two-edged sword that provokes Israel's jealousy and provides for Gentile salvation. This is, Paul really loves this and goes off on it. I'm going to read it to you here, Romans chapter 11. The majesty and the wisdom of God in this, what he did with Israel to provoke them because he loves them. He wants them to become jealous and come back to him. So here's that jilted lover stuff I was talking about. But at the same time, he's providing for the salvation of the Gentiles. It's, it's perfect. Listen to this. Romans chapter 11, verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, Israel's transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? To make them jealous. Paul says, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Think about that. How much greater is this going to be when Israel is saved? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, Paul writes, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles and I magnify my ministry. passionate motivation to bring the gospel out into the rest of the world was to make his own people jealous so they'd be saved. That's godly thinking, my friends. He says, if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, <laughs> what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Skip down, verse 22, if you're, if you're with me on this or just listen. Verse 22 of Romans 11, Behold then the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, Gentiles, kindness, his kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. They also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. And then Paul explains, if you were cut off from what by his nature a wild olive tree, and you were grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree. Wild olive tree, the Gentiles out in the world. The cultivated olive tree, Israel. If you were grafted into this, how much more will those who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? I don't want your brethren to be uninformed of this mystery, so you will not be wise in your own estimation. 
that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, Isaiah 59, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. In Jeremiah chapter 31, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul says, oh, and you can just hear Paul revving up here. From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they, Israel, are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once disobedient to God, Gentiles, and now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so that he say, may show mercy to all. And Paul just goes off. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let that sink in. Pause for a moment and ponder that. Man, Romans 11 ends with a great place just to end the letter. Now, it's Paul, so he's not going to stop there. But how profound to think about the wisdom of God and how he has so perfectly thought this through and brought it to bear. And what's going to happen for Israel's future is promised. God's not done. Praise his name. Verse 22, back in the song. For a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundation of the mountains. I will heap misfortunes on them, Israel. I will use my arrows on them. They will be wasted by famine and consumed by plague and bitter destruction and the teeth of beasts I will send upon them with the venom of crawling things of the dust. Outside the sword will bereave, and inside terror, both young man and virgin, the nursling with the man of gray hair. Have we not seen that of what we can see, of what we have seen? And listen, for all of the, the blessings of, of Jewish brilliance, and artistry, and intellect, and even humor. I mean, the Jewish people have it in spades over the rest of the world. But for all of that, it has been a cursed road for Israel. It has been a painful journey, even to the point, get this, the word plague in verse 24 is reshep. Reshep means burning heat. And I believe this is an explicit prophecy of the crematoriums of the Nazi Holocaust. That it even got that far. But, but, don't forget and, and understand, whenever we talk about Israel, th this, this is one little bit of confusion that tends to happen. As Paul taught, a remnant of Israel have chosen Messiah. So it's not like, if you are Jewish or have Jewish background, my friend Hank, it doesn't mean that, oh, well, then you're just cast out. No, no. 
Jewish people like Gentiles have the same choice of Jesus and have had that choice for 2,000 years. And in fact, the first century church was all Jewish. It was a Jewish church there in Jerusalem. It only began to expand to the Gentiles when Jewish Paul went out from Antioch and, and, and set about bringing the gospel. And Barnabas and others who then the apostles began to go out into the rest of the world from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. But it started a Jewish movement, a Jewish realization of their very Jewish Messiah in Jesus. And so along with the wild olives that are now being grafted into the promises of God, all of those branches of Israel choosing Messiah are also grafted right back in to the promises of God through Jesus Christ. And there's one name, Jew and Gentile alike, for this people church. We're the church. We are the called out. We are the called assembly, the ecclesia. Salvation, therefore, is as close to every Jewish person in the world as it is to every Gentile to the world. As Moses said just recently, the word is so near. Man, it's in your mouth. It's in your heart that you can confess it. So any Jewish person, any Gentile alive today can be grafted into the promises saved by Jesus by simple utterance, declaration of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and belief in his resurrection. That's it. Now the nation as a whole, Israel as a nation, stands in neglect of grace. But, but suddenly, watch this, Moses sings number six in our seven-part stanza of the song, the abandonment of judgment. Verse 26, the abandonment of judgment. I would have said, God speaking, I will cut them to pieces. I will remove the memory of them from men. Had I not feared the provocation of the, by the enemy that their adversaries would misjudge or that they would say, our hand is triumphant and the Lord has not done all this. Listen to me. God's great concern here is for his own reputation, which is weird to say. He says, I would have removed the memory of Israel from mankind. I would have just wiped him out. So that's the, the heart of the jilted lover. I just say, forget him. Except, except that had I not feared the provocation by the enemy. That's one of the weirdest things I've ever heard out of the mouth of God. Does God fear? Had I not feared the provocation of the enemy. Best way to understand this in the language is a divine concern, a divine consternation. I, I said, I fear that God is turning away from America as a nation. I'm not afraid. I, I'm in Christ. I'm not afraid, but I am concerned. There is consternation among many of us as Christians as to where the country's going. And so we, we will use the phrase sometimes, boy, I just, I just fear this is how it's going to end up, or I fear where this is going. You're not afraid. You're not saying I'm, I'm trembling in fright. You're just saying I am so concerned about this. That's what God's saying. I am concerned about the provocation of the enemy. Now listen, I, I said when we began, all of this book, all of the Bible hinges on who God is, as revealed in Jesus Christ. So it's all about who God is. If that's the case, and it is, why is God concerned with what people think about him? 
why would God care what people have to say about him, about his reputation? And I'll tell you why. Listen, what we know of God determines our salvation. His reputation is vital to our salvation. Knowing him as he is, understanding him as gracious, loving, merciful, and righteous Savior, we've got to know God for who he is. Not as other gods have been made up by cultures. So his reputation matters, and God knows it matters, not just so he can feel good about himself and everybody knows him as, you know, as he is. It's because that's our salvation. Are, are you with me on that? This is why Jesus says, who do people say that I am? It's not that Jesus with the apostles gets away and goes, hey, hey, what are they talking about? What are they, what are they saying about me? You know, if I said that to you, like, like tonight with us gathered, hey, what are people saying in the fellowship about me? You guys would be like, oh, Rick, that's really sad. <laughs> you worried about that? That's not what's going on. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Because what you say about me will determine your salvation. Peter, of course, blurts out, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, Matthew 16, 15 and 16 and 17. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Jesus looks with love at Peter. This is vital. Peter, Peter, you have the revelation of God as to who I am. You could put it this way. The revelation of our salvation is God's reputation. God's reputation is our salvation. Knowing him for who he is. Think about it. What, what if it had depended on Israel keeping the law? What if their salvation depended on that? <laughs> They'd be done, finished, bupkis. And if their demise depended on the power of the enemy, well, God points out that would just stoke Gentile pride. You know, that's like mighty Babylon coming in and going, it's because of our power and grandeur and greatness that we took out Israel. And God goes, yeah, and I'm going to take you out, Babylon. And nation after nation after nation, God has just taken them out. Because it's not about the pride or the arrogance of man. No, it all depends on God. And so God now is abandoning total judgment of Israel. Why? Because of his mercy for Jew and Gentile alike. It's amazing to me. Something else here stirs his mercy as well. Verse 28, they are a nation lacking in counsel, and there is no understanding in them. Would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. And again, yes, he's talking about Israel, but you apply it across the board to humanity. <laughs> we're so clueless. Would that we understood, would that we would discern. There is no understanding or counsel. And so God looks at the foolishness and the lack of knowledge of humanity and goes, I got to show them mercy because they don't know what they're doing. They just don't know. By the way, note this in your Bibles. You might even want to write it in the word future in verse 29, because this song is rolling along progressively along a timeline, if you will. And verse 29, he says, oh, that they would discern their acharit. A-C-H-A-R-I-T, acharit in the Hebrew. And the word is time of the end. 
not just vague future out there. It's, oh, that they would discern their end. That they would be aware of the end of days, the last days, the last of the last days, as we have tended to call it. The end times. I love the verse about Issachar. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. It's such a great application. He says, of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Or Psalm 39, verse 4. David writes, Lord, make me know my end. The word end there literally means my final destination. My kissy <laughs> is the Hebrew word. Make me know my kissy. My final destination. And what's the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Let me pause and ask you all, and I know I'm speaking to the choir here, but I'll ask it anyway. Do you understand the times? Do you know your final destination? Do you know how close we are? This is vital to our faith. Absolutely vital to our faith. John says, 1 John chapter 3, those who have hope in Jesus coming purifies themselves just as he is pure. Hope in the rapture of the church. Hope in our final destination. Hope that God will, as he promised to, catch us up. The blessed hope, Titus 2.13 calls it. Man, if you have that, it will purify your life because you're on the lookout, you're alert, you're aware, you're living for Jesus. Do you know your future, your final destination? This is a road song, folks. There's a destination here. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 2, when it's evening, you'll say it'll be, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there'll be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky? but cannot discern the signs of the times. Or as Chuck Missler puts it, these are the times of the signs. Do you know what day we're living in? I, I want to address something else. I I've made a few little corrections. This is not a correction, but I think I was misunderstood. I, I know I was by at least a couple of people on Sunday when I quoted Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. Talking about the last day's church, the church of Philadelphia, the mission church, church of the open door. And Jesus says to this church a curious phrase. He says in Revelation 3, 8, I know you have little power, little strength. And, and I said on Sunday, he has given us just enough to persevere, to keep his word, to hold fast the name of Jesus. Now I have one dear sister say, I was kind of discouraged by that. And I, I was jarred because I'm like, I meant that to be encouraging. The fact is we have what we need. We have what little strength we need to see this through to the end. We have the power in us right now by the presence, the seal of the Spirit of God to be ready when he calls. To hold fast his name in a culture where his name is being spurned right and left. To keep his word at a time where few are doing so. To, to be people who persevere, holding to the word of his perseverance. We don't need to be walking on water. We need a little power. And we have it. We have it in Jesus. Listen, the demonic realm, as we were talking about before, calls attention to immediate pleasure. 
I don't know if I'd be going too, maybe I'd be going too far to say Instagram is demonic. TikTok is of the devil. I, you know, if there are good things on it, and I know that there are pastors who do little TikTok teachings and, and, and use little Instagram, and we have an Instagram account for the church. So it better not be demonic. But I'll tell you what it is. It is a tool of the enemy because everything is blips. Everything is fast. Everything is clips. 30 second to one minute clips. So that you can, and teenagers are doing this all the time. Hour upon hour flipping clip to clip to clip to clip to clip. And they're saying right now, it's changing the way people think. It is affecting the brain of the generation coming up such that they have zero tolerance for anything like, hmm, say, an hour-long Bible study. If I can't... <laughs> We're choosing Cheez-Its. And that, my friend, Instagram, TikTok, whatever, that is demonic. To narrow the focus and the ability, everything is get it fast, get it quick, get it now. Right? I mean, is that not culture? How long have we been here sitting here in this Bible study? Almost an hour now? You're still here? I'd say go home, but I'm not done. <laughs> Listen, God reveals the latter end of the story, the final destination and the eternality of all of this. Cam said something this morning I got to share with you. I loved it. She said, you know, what's so interesting about Bible study like this is, is we're, we pick it apart and we go in and we find the Hebrew word and we find the correlations and we see the prophecy in it and, and all of that. And it's wonderful and, and we're taught and we're learning and growing. Great. But there's something. Else. You know what? There is this, there's this remarkable sense of God, of the presence of Jesus. There's more than just education going on here. Otherwise, get it online and stay home. But you're here. Why are you here? There's something of the presence of the Spirit. And I want to be in that place. So when we're in the Word of God, it's, it's like His Spirit just starts to overflow and move among us. And there's time that we can sit and just soak in His Word. Remember, remember, let my teaching disp dispel or distill as the dew. Let it soak in. And as it's soaking into us, something marvelous is happening in our hearts. This is not the quick clips. It's Bible study, but it's more than that. It's being in the presence of God. Isaiah 66, verse 22, talking about the final destination and the eternal work of God that is longstanding and ongoing. God says, just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name, Israel, will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon, from Shabbat to Shabbat, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Oh, Israel, I've got a plan that is eternal for you. And by the way, the Gentiles are coming along too. Revelation 22, 14, Jesus said, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. So do we discern our acharit, our future, our final destination? Discern that, know that, and discern the times in which we live. Verse 30, God says, How could one chase a thousand? And two, put 10,000 to flight. 
unless their rock had sold them. That is their rock, Israel's rock, had sold them their enemies. Let me clarify that for you because it gets a little tricky if you're the English translation. How could one chase a thousand? That is, how could one Jew chase a thousand? And, and how could two Jewish people put 10,000 to flight? Which, by the way, every modern war of Israel we've seen, a handful of Jewish people have put thousands to flight. This has actually happened. Happened in the Six-Day War. One of the greatest stories was, was the Syrian army about to attack, lined up on the Golan Heights, ready to roll into Israel. And they got word. They, they knew that there were some Jews down there. They got word that there was a whole battalion, and they backed up and went back to Damascus. And it turns out there were two Jewish tanks down there. Just two. If Syria had rolled in, they would have cut the country in half and wiped out Israel. God says, by practical application, prophetically, how could one chase a thousand <laughs> and two put 10,000 to flight unless Israel's rock, their rock, God, had sold them, that is the enemies. And the Lord had given them, the enemies had given them up. Indeed, their rock, the enemy's rock, is not like our rock. And even our enemies themselves judge this. I love that. That means even the enemy knows in their heart of hearts, they know who the God of Israel is. They know he's insurmountable, and the enemy himself knows that. And demons know that. They understand. They themselves judge this. All we can do is wreak havoc and ruin and destroy as much as we can, but he is insurmountable God. And if he's with these people, there's <laughs> nothing we can do. Verse 32 for their vine, and now he's speaking about the, Israel, the, the enemies of Israel, their vine is from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the venom of serpents and the deadly poison or the cruel poison of cobras. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries. He's talking about judgment of the enemies. And then he says, verse 35, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip for the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. Them who? The enemies of Israel. So now God has just turned this judgment. He's abandoned the judgment of Israel and the judgment has now turned to the nations to the Gentiles, to those who stand in rebellion. And Moses is still singing. <laughs> For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants. When? When he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. That is, there is no strength remaining even for the bond servant or the free man. All strength, all strength, all strength is gone. What did we talk about on Sunday? We have little power. We have a little power. All we need. Guess what? God says Israel is going to come to the point where they have none. They are going to get to the point. I'm talking about Israel as a nation will come to the point, that point in tribulation where all power, all hope is gone where there's only one possible solution, one hope out of the disaster, and that is God's mercy, God himself. 
and he will abandon judgment of them and in that moment will have compassion on them. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, God said, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And that's the point. The power we have is not our power. The strength we have here in the last day church, not my strength, not your strength. It's Jesus. It's the Spirit in us giving us exactly what we need. Listen to this again. When he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining, the Lord will vindicate his people. The Lord will have compassion on his people. It immediately drew me back years ago, late 80s, Stephen Curtis Chapman, one of the first hit songs that he ever had on Christian radio, his strength is perfect when our strength is gone. He carries us when we can't carry on. Raised in his power, the weak become strong. His strength is perfect. Now, note this. Verse 35, it should sound familiar to you. Vengeance is mine and retribution. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Paul quotes that. The Hebrew pastor quotes that. Paul in Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, Christian brothers and sisters, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> well, but God here is saying he's going to wipe him out. God's talking vengeance. And now, Paul, you're saying, we're not supposed to do that? God gets to do it, but we don't? Exactly. Exactly. That's the point. Here's, here's the thing. Here's the difference between you and me and God. God doesn't love vengeance. He, just, he uses vengeance perfectly, righteously. That's why Die Hard remains one of the number one Christmas movies. Look it up on Google. Top 10 Christmas movies. You're going to find Die Hard among many people's lists of great Christmas. I don't know why. Because it's, it's vengeance. Man, Bruce Willis gets back at the bad guy, who, by the way, ended up being Severus Snape in the Harry Potter series. So I'm not sure how that all worked out. Anyway, <laughs> Die Hard, for crying out loud. Why, is that, why do people love movies like that? Because vengeance. We sit there at the end of it, we're so satisfied when the bag is wiped out, yeah, make my day. We like vengeance too much. God says, don't take vengeance. My people, don't you? I will take care of the vengeance, not you. The Hebrew pastor quoted, he said, Hebrews 10, 30, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Who's that? Yahweh. And again, the Lord will judge his people. The Hebrew pastor concludes it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh, say, okay, really quickly here. How do we reconcile this with God's law? Because God gives Israel the lex talionis. Remember I told you that before, the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. Eye for an eye, foot for a foot, right? Uh, hand for hand, tooth for tooth. Burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Exodus 21, 23 through 25. It is in Jewish law. 
Someone burns you, you get to burn them. Yeah. Someone takes your hand, you get to take theirs. Stretch it out, buddy. <laughs> but well, then Paul comes along and says, never take vengeance. Vengeance is mine. And even here, God says, vengeance is mine and retribution. I get that, not you. But God, you told Israel to do it. No, he didn't. He didn't. The law of retaliation is a civil law. It's a civil law for the people of Israel to be enacted on a national and civic level. And it was actually set up as a standard of mercy that would curb unfair retribution. If you lose a finger, you don't get to take someone's hand. If you get poked in the eye, you don't get to cut off their head. You see what I'm saying? Our natural human tendency is vengeance, is to go way beyond what's required. Someone hits you in the knee. I want to take a leg. No, God says. No, it's going to be absolutely fair, knee for knee. <laughs> eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But understand again, it was a civic law to curb retribution that would go beyond the crime itself. On a personal basis, vengeance belongs to God alone. So personally for you, for me, and, and the Christian way above all this, to pay back evil is kindness. And that is so counter to our nature. But that's what Jesus wants of us. He said, you've heard that it was said, Matthew 5, 38, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say to you, personally, listen to me, don't resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Why does this depend on the Lord? Because God alone cannot take unfair, unjust, undeserved vengeance. Where there is vengeance, it is fair. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Everyone will see it and know it. When the vengeance comes down that's talked about in this song, we will all at that time say, yep, yep. He didn't overdo it. He did exactly what was right in terms of vengeance. By the way, verses 34 and 35, the vengeance is mine section. These two verses were the text of what is perhaps the most famous sermon in American history. Did you know that? Vengeance is mine. The sermon was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Well, that's a great title. You just know before you even open up to the scripture. What's he teaching on this morning? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Oh, man. I hope I'm wearing something that's fire retardant because this is going to get hot. It was preached by Jonathan Edwards, the year 1741. Listen, Jonathan Edwards was a quiet, um, soft-spoken man. He was known to preach in kind of a high, he was a high talker. He would preach in a high pitched voice, but monotone. So preaching the whole time up here like this, straight through, not really changing, not going up or down or anything else, but just preaching the word that he had before him that people could follow. Can you even imagine that? I can't either. And he preached reading line for line his notes. He had big, big thick spectacles. And, and he would sit there and he would just, you know, pour over Pate line by line. He read from his notes. And this particular sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he had already preached once at home with zero response. But he goes to a neighboring church. He's 
a visiting pastor. He opens up his notes, sets them on the podium, begins to read them line by line. And as he droned on, he came to this line. He said, men are walking over a fiery pit on an icy plank. And all of a sudden, people started weeping. Before he was even finished with the sermon, people literally, and you can read about this in the Great Awakening, they were crawling down the aisle in repentance. They were gathering around the altar of that church, weeping and moaning and repenting of their sins, and the great awakening had begun. Because of this verse, vengeance is mine and retribution, declares the Lord. What's the point? I said this on Sunday, revival is not about a spiritual buzz. Revival is about repentance. I said on Sunday, I don't think revival's gonna come. I, 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 let me just clarify, I would love for it to come. I'm looking for the rapture. That's the revival I want. I would much rather be revived to meet Jesus in the clouds than have a revival here. But hey, if there's a revival to happen here, great. But here's how it's gonna happen, folks. Repentance is mine, God says, to the enemies of Israel. And now we come to the final stanza, the advancement of grace, verse 37. And he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? The implication is no other God was eating or drinking these things because there is no other God. He says, let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. Still talking to Israel's enemies. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who healed, who, who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. You realize that God never explains himself to us. He says stuff like this. And you would think, okay, <laughs> Lord, after that, maybe a little verse of explanation. What do you really mean by that? Because that's pretty intense. I kill and I, and, and I give life. I restore and, and I, I wound and I heal. Okay, you might want to explain that, Lord. No, he doesn't have to. And he never does. He doesn't explain himself to us. He doesn't justify himself. All, you know what God does? He presents himself. I am who I am, Yahweh. This is me, as I am. Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, another verse that, that is interesting. The Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Wait a minute, Lord, you just told Moses that you make people blind? Isaiah 45, verse 6 says that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. The one forming light. Oh, glorious, wonderful. And creating darkness. Huh? Causing well-being. Yes. And creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things, God declares. And we sit back and go, explanation, please. And the creator does not need to give the created or the creature any explanation for what he does. He doesn't owe us anything. John chapter 9, verse 2. 
The disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What? 30 plus years a man lived his life blind. Why? So God could be glorified. But how is that fair? God, explain yourself. And I know this is hard to hear, but you know what? It doesn't matter how or what I think God should be. I can have my opinions about what he's done in my life, in other people's lives, what tragedies he's allowed, what's taken place on the planet, the evils that have befallen us. I can have opinions about whether or not it should have been done that way. I have no right to question the creator. Listen, and I'm getting to a point here. Faith is trusting God as he is for who he is even when I don't understand what he does. God, I'm going to trust you. My life has just gone into a difficult place, but I know that you are a God of all goodness. I know you're a God of love, God of mercy, God of grace, God of righteousness. I know perfect are all your ways. Therefore, though I don't understand what you're doing right now, I'm going to trust you. That's faith. It's really not that hard. It just means I'm going to trust God to do what he needs to do. Now listen, I am not saying that God created COVID. I think that was a lab in Wuhan. But I'm not saying that all the corruption and calamity and despair and dark oppression in the world today is all God just decided I'm going to do this. It, much of it is the result of our sin and our rebellion that he's allowed to run rampant. But he has control. He could have stopped it at any time. He did with the flood. He could wash it out right now should he choose to do so. What I'm saying is the creature or, or the creator owes the creature no explanation and the world that rejects Jesus, man, is just begging for divine judgment. Verse 40. Indeed, he says, I lift up my hand to heaven. This has been taken two ways. One is as God getting ready to swear on himself. Or I lift up my hand to heaven, flashing sword, and my hand takes hold on justice. I will render vengeance on my adversaries, and I will repay those who hate me. And I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. And God has just taken us, the song has just taken us right into the tribulation. God's final retribution. It rushes all the way to the very end of the age. Isaiah 34, just listen to this, verse 6, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Eden, which by the way is one of the reasons why we think Jesus, when he returns, sets foot first in Eden before the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Wild oxen will also fall with them, young bulls with strong ones. Thus their land will be soaked with blood and their dust become greasy with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause, underscore that, for the cause of Zion. He is going to pay back. You think about this. All the evils that have been done against the Jewish people, God will repay everyone perfectly with absolute fairness 
and justice. Oh, over in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. This is going to happen. This is prophesied to take place. The nations of the world coming together to fight against Jerusalem. The city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Now it's called the battle. Half the mountain will move toward the north. The other half will move toward the south. And in an instant, verse 5, so we return with Jesus at that time at the end of the tribulation, and we're setting down on our white horses just as it's all over. And then me and John are going to high-five each other. Yeah, we won. Kind of like walking, watching a Seahawks game, maybe not this year, but when they win. <laughs> you know, and, and you sit there, and you jump up and down when we get a touchdown. Yeah, we got a touchdown. No, you didn't. Russell did. You're sitting on your rear end watching the game. You didn't do nothing. We're going to be sitting on our horses. And it will all be over in an instant. God will be done. The tribulation culminating at Armageddon, the world judged, Israel vindicated, and this song fulfilled perfectly. The good news is, and I just want to remind you all of this, Revelation 3.10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, Jesus says, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm going to keep you out of that. And you're coming back with me at the end of it. Well, verse 43, last note of the song, Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. It ends with an invitation to the nations in the advancement of grace. Note that. He says, Rejoice, O nations, the word nations, goyim. It's actually a Jewish slur to Gentiles today. They'll refer to a Gentile as a goy. In Hebrew, goyim, plural, the Gentiles. Rejoice, O goyim, Gentiles, with his people. You know what that is? They will sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. That's the church. That's Israel together, saved by Jesus, rejoicing together. Rejoice, O nations, with his people. I love that. The song ends with Moses singing time where it's related to Israel, but their track record is abhorrent. The United Nations, by their track record, believes that the eradication of Israel is the world's only hope for real peace. If we can wipe out Israel, let's just get rid of the Jewish people, or the nation at least. And then finally, we'll have peace. You know what God says? The exact opposite that the world's only hope for real peace comes through Israel. Isaiah 9, verse 6. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end uh, to the increase of his government or of peace. Where? On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with righteousness and justice from this then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You want peace? You got to go to the prince forever. From, from whom? From Israel. Our only hope for peace comes from Israel. And when Jesus comes to establish that kingdom, that promise to Israel, he'll do it with perfect righteous vengeance. Yes, vengeance. 
and justice and atonement, even for the land, there will be blood atonement for the land, and there will in that kingdom be peace on earth. Deb, you said this to me years ago. So if I'm thinking correctly, she said, when I pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's praying for peace on earth. Exactly, exactly. Because that's when we will have peace on earth. That's why Jesus came in the first place, that ultimately there would be peace on earth. We don't have it right now, but we will. Starting to transition into taking over. So he's there as Moses is singing the song, but you might note, the song's not about Moses. It's called the Song of Moses, but it's really not the Song of Moses. It's the Song of Yahweh. But Moses is singing. Joshua is right there standing next to him as the next in line. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, verse 45, verse 46, he said to them, take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this Torah. That's why we've called this study through Deuteronomy words to take to heart. This is heart stuff. This isn't legalism. This isn't religion. It's not law. This is stuff to take to your very heart. He says, by the way, carefully all the words of this law. So it's not just the words of the song. It's all Torah. Take to heart everything. Genesis through Deuteronomy that I've shared. But, but then he says, verse 47, we'll end here. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word, you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. It's one of my favorite verses in all scripture. It's not an idle word to you. It's your life. Moses says, idle word. The word idle is wreck. R-E-Q. It means vain, worthless, or empty as if you've just poured out, a, poured out a soda bottle and there's nothing left. That's idle. It's sitting there on the counter. You ever done that? You come walk into the house and the soda bottle, seven up bottle sitting on the counter, you go, oh, I could use some, there's nothing there. Well, that's really disappointing. <laughs> that's idle. What's he even doing there? Who put the orange juice bottle back in the fridge where there's none in it? That's an idle bottle. And that's what he's saying. This is an idle word to you. It's poured out. He says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Literally, you welcomed it like a welcome guest. You welcomed the word of God, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. You took it to heart, Paul says. Take these words to heart. His word. Brothers and sisters, because we're talking about the song of Moses, this is the lyric of our lives. This is the song of our lives, the word of God. But it's more than, more than our life. It, it, it's everlasting life. It is, it's Jesus. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. John 5, 39. It's these that testify about me. The flesh profits nothing. It's an empty orange juice container. It's no good. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But conversely, he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. The word, listen, the word, get this. The word is not idle. 
It is not idle. Therefore, put it into drive. <laughs> put the road song into drive. The song of Moses is a road song. It's not a swan song. I realized this in studying. I, I was originally going to call this words of a swan song. It's not a swan song because a swan song is something sung or spoken at the end of a person's life about their life. It's not about Moses. There's not a word in this song that's about Moses. So in reality, it's really not the song of Moses. It's the song of Yahweh. It's the song of God. The lyrics here are the lyrics of life in God. I have lyrics. What, what, would, what are the verses? What are the stanzas? Do the words intone your life? These words, the word of God. Does it sing to you of the final destination? Is your life focused on that, that the lyric and the melody is pointing you directly to Jesus Christ and coming to him who said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. This road song is a song to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Oh, I, I can't wait, truly, Lord, to sing the song of Moses and the Lamb, to turn right around and join our family, our brothers and sisters of Israel, saved, redeemed of Moses, the wonderful lyrics of what you have accomplished, and to sing the song of the Lamb, our very hope in Jesus. Lord, thank you for these words tonight. May they bring hope, encouragement, and all the strength we need to see this road to the very end. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.